Hello Convention of States podcast listeners. This is our weekly podcast featuring historic legacy content from our audio archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by this week's episode. At the 2022 Convention of States Reclaiming Liberty Summit, Convention of States Action Senior Advisor and former U.S. Senator Rick Santorum gives a speech to 600 Convention of States leaders. Then he sits down for an interview with Mark Meckler. A couple of years back now, uh, we lost my dear friend Tom Coburn, and uh, I loved him so much, and I traveled with him for five years, the last five years of his life. He was a true warrior for liberty. He was a great Christian man. He was an incredible mentor to me, and it was a loss to the organization, and it was a great loss personally because he was such a close friend and mentor. And I really, there was a spot that was just empty at Convention of States, and I remember looking around. I remember talking to Patty, and we had this conversation that that spot could just never be filled. Like, I couldn't even think of anybody that I would even talk to about stepping into that senior advisor role at that level with that kind of gravitas. Uh, and yet, in my life that entire time was our next speaker, Rick Santorum. And Rick and I knew each other, not politically, not professionally. We had a mutual friend by the name of Foster Fries, a huge philanthropist, and he used to like to take his friends hunting and fishing. And so I met Rick as a hunter and a fisherman. We, we would fish together up in Canada for, uh, for salmon. We would hunt pheasant in South Dakota together. And so I knew about his family. I knew him as a friend and a, and a good man, but I never thought of him as a politician or a person that I, I would know professionally. And then Rick worked for CNN. A lot of you saw him on CNN. A lot of people wondered why would he work on CNN, a good conservative guy like that. I think it's fantastic. Point of the spear right in the heart of the beast. I loved it. <laughs> Ultimately, Rick got canceled by CNN for saying conservative things. Shocking from a conservative, right? <laughs> for being true to who he was, even though he was at CNN. You, you see these so-called Republicans or conservatives on CNN or MSNBC or whatever, Generally, they're not really Republicans, not really conservatives. That's not Rick. And, and so Rick called me one day and said, I'm done at CNN. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. What do you think I should do? And all of a sudden, I thought, well, oh my gosh, why didn't I think of it? How about Convention of States, right? He's a man with the stature, the gravitas, the history, the presidential runs, being a senator, all the stuff America knows him and loves him. And so we talked about it, and uh, he'll tell you a little bit about that process. And so he came to COS. The thing that I want you to know about Rick that's much more important than the presidential runs, than being a senator, uh, than being a true blue conservative, which he is and has always been, is what a good man he is. You know, you see people on stage, you see people in politics, they achieve things and they achieve great things and Rick has achieved great things. And you think, okay, so that's a great person, that's a person who has achieved greatness. What we often don't know is what's behind the greatness. And unfortunately, often what's behind the greatness is something that's not so great, right? Is that it's the ego, it's the hubris that comes with achieving these levels of success. The most important thing that I can tell you about Rick Santorum is he is one of the best men I've ever met. He is a great man who is also a good man. And it's my honor and pleasure to introduce you to my good friend, Rick Santorum.
Good morning, everybody. Thank you. That's uh, overly generous, Mark. Thank you. And it's, uh, it's great to be here with you. I, I'll pick, off where, pick up where Mark left off, um, which is, how did I get the COS? Uh, Mark did, uh, I did call Mark and asked him, you know, what should I be doing? Where, you know, where, where do you think I'm, uh, I'm at the highest and best use? Because I've been in the conservative vineyard for a long, long time. Uh, I got elected to Congress back in 1990 and uh, was part of the group called the Gang of Seven. And uh, we, we exposed the house banking scandal and check writing and all this stuff that was going on within the in the Congress and led to the Republican Revolution in 1994, which was the first time Republicans controlled Congress in 40 years and came to the Senate and did welfare reform and uh, talked on and led on the issue of abortion and marriage and a whole bunch of other controversial stuff. I was, uh, in, in a sense, the, 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 the conservative warrior that was out there trying to get, get a lot of stuff done. And, Back in those days, you could actually get some things done. So for me, it was always, you know, what could I do next? Even after I lost for uh, the United States Senate in a horrible election year in 2006, I lost by the largest margin of any incumbent, any incumbent senator in 30 years. And I always have to say thanks to Blanche Lincoln from Arkansas, because several years later, she lost by more than me. Otherwise, I'd still have that record. Um, and so, uh, so what did I do after 2006? Well, four years later, I decided I'd run for president of the United States. I mean, after you lose by 18 points, what, what, what should you do? Um, and I became, as it turned out, I became the conservative alternative to Mitt Romney and darn near, I won 11 states and darn near won that primary, even though I was outspent about six to one in that primary. Why? because I had a very focused conservative message that we had to get government smaller, that we had to return to the family. I wrote a book in the early uh, 2000s called It Takes a Family. After I ran and, and almost won, I wrote another book called Blue Collar Conservative because my campaign in 2012 was about all the things that you need to do to reform a Republican or conservative coalition around blue collar workers. And by the way, the person who, uh, uh, I was on a radio show and a person called me after hearing me on this radio show and said, hey, come up and see me. I want to talk to you about this book. And I did. And I talked to him and he said, you know, I'm thinking about running for president. And, and this is the book I'm going to use as my background. And I said, yeah, yeah, you'll never run, Donald. And uh, <laughs> so he did. And, uh, and, and so I feel like I've always been at the tip of the spear of the conservative movement. And so when I called Mark and he said, hey, have you thought about convention of states? And I said, yeah, you know what? I'm not even sure I'm for convention of states. Uh, I, you know, I hadn't really thought about it. And again, I'm on the federal level. I've been a senator running for president. Not really something that was on my radar screen. And uh, he said, well, you know, you should look at it. I mean, because you're, you're all about trying to fundamentally transform the country. And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, you know, I've been giving speeches across the country talking about how we need structural reform. Uh, that because of my experience, things hap have happened in Washington that the constitution we know and love no longer is that constitution. So I'm giving this speech uh, at, across the country. I was at the Western Conservative Summit, CPAC, others, talking about how we needed to have structural reform within our constitution. And then Mark hits me with this. So it was a God thing all over, the, uh, all over it. And, and the more I read about convention, the state said, why didn't I not know about this? But here's, there's a point to this. And the point is, look, I'm a swamp creature. I've been in Washington, in and around Washington and national politics for 30 years, and I had no idea of what convention of states really was. 
And, and I share that with you because I know a lot of you run into this issue, which is, you know, I talk to people and they don't know what, no, nobody seems to know about what Convention of States is. And that just tells you that we have so much potential out there. I know you're frustrated by that. I get frustrated by that. I go to state legislatures, like I'm you know, going to Pennsylvania, and I, most members don't know much about it. That's going to start changing. I just want to, I'm just trying to let you know, that's going to start changing. Why? Success. The fact that we're at 19, what we've seen over the past, just even the past few months, is the left is starting to recognize that we're getting close. We're hovering, we're getting clear, closer to the target. You know, if we can pick up Ohio here at the, in the lame duck session this year and get to 20, right? So we're, we're now getting closer. You get that squiggly line in the front, you know? The, that squiggly line in the front is really important. Getting to 20 is gonna make a big difference because all of a sudden the national media can't ignore us and they won't. Right now they've successfully ignored us. They thought, look, I've, I, when I ran for president, I couldn't get on national TV. I, they, they, that's how they kill conservatives. You, you think they kill conservatives by going after us? No, they kill you by not covering your issues. That's, that's the real power of the media, is what they don't print. It's not what they do print. It's what they, don't, what they ignore. And they've been ignoring us. But pretty soon they're going to not ignore us. And you think you had it hard before when they ignored us? You wait. Okay, they're gonna, they're gonna start coming after us as a movement. And, and so we're ha we have our work cut as, as hard as you think our work is now, it's gonna get that much harder and we have to be that much better and that much more organized to be successful. And so that's, that's the first message I want to communicate to you, which is things are gonna start to get harder and we're gonna to have to start to get better at our communications and, and, and uh, particularly at, 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 in the states that we need to accomplish to get to 34. And here's the exciting thing. We're at 31 state legislatures right now. Everyone thinks, I talk to people in Washington and conservative groups and I'm trying to work that, that group a little bit and they say, well, you know, uh, it may be a good idea, but you have no chance of getting this done. And I said, well, you're right, the country's really divided. But you know what's really not divided is the states. The states actually, if you, you know, they know that, that you have a handful of big states that are blue states, that that's how Democrats win elections and control things in the Congress. But the reality is that most states are not blue. And increasingly so, particularly thanks to Joe Biden, we have an opportunity not just to get where we are at 31. Now, don't ever applaud Joe Biden. Uh, <laughs> And even if I'm being critical, don't applaud him. Uh, so we can get to, with Minnesota this year, to 32, or maybe you know, another state like a Colorado or, or Washington or something like get to 33, and then next year, we got elections in Virginia, and we can get to 34, and all of a sudden, we'd be in a situation where all we have to do is get all the Republicans to vote yes, and we don't have a convention in 10 years or 100 years, as Mark said. We have a, a convention in a year or two. So this is, the reason the left is paying attention is because they see this as real. And now we have to start behaving like it's real. So one of the things, a couple of things I want to talk to you about. Number one is working with legislators. 
Now, I'm, I'm someone who was a legislator. I was a senator for, for 12 years, a congressman for four years. And here's what I want to tell you. Legislators are people too, okay? By the, by the way, how many legislators do we have? If you're a legislator, stand up, stand up here. Anybody out there a legislator? I know we've at least got a couple. There's one, Tom. All right, we got two. All right, three. Okay, these are, these are your heroes. Number one, they're here, right? And they're willing to lead. And, and so we need to make these folks your best friends. And that has to be in every state. I know you're, most of you are conservative grassroots activists, which means, by and large, you distrust and hate the people in power. <laughs> Am I wrong? Right? They're worthless. They're rhinos. Whatever. You call them whatever you want. The problem is you need them. Okay? And, and the reality is, I don't know too many. I, I, got, I cut my teeth when I was a kid in the state legislature. I was a staff person there. I don't know any state legislator who goes there to become rich, famous, and powerful. That, that, that's just, that's not where you become rich, and that's not where you become really powerful. You, you, you go to Washington for that these days. Most legislatures are, are, are there just trying to do what's best for their community and their state. Now, not all of them, but the vast majority. And they're, they're part-time, and, and they have jobs, and they have other things going on, and, and they just want to do the best they can and, and keep it simple. What they really need, what you really want, if, if you want to be effective as, as a leader if conservative states, convention of states, you need to befriend these legislators. You need to be their best friend. You need to be their supporter. You need to be there for them. If you have someone who's a supporter of COS and they don't know you and you're in your community, that's your fault, not theirs. You need to make these people know that you are on their side, you support them, and you are there for them when they need you, not when you need them. It's like any friendship. What kind of friend is just there when they're doing things for you? That's not what friendship is. And believe it or not, these legislators respond to human interaction. Right? And so I, I, I know that there's this attitude that this is the enemy, that they're the enemy because they did this wrong or they did that wrong. Well, yes, they probably did. They probably had some bad votes, but you don't care about those votes. I know you do, but when you're here and you're wearing the COS badge, you care about one vote. That's the most important thing that you have to remember. Because I know you're all activists and you're concerned about lots of different votes. You're concerned about election reform. You're concerned about pro-life. You're concerned about all these things. All good things. You need to be. But there's nothing more important than you're doing, and that's why you're here, than getting this resolution passed in your state. Because this is a moment in time when our country is at stake, and the only thing we can do to save the division that's happening in this country is federalism, and the only hope for that is Convention of States. So I'm not saying you shouldn't work on pro-life issues or Second Amendment issues or other issues that you're concerned about. CRT and transing the kids and all that stuff's important. Don't get me wrong. And you may have legislators that, you know, are, are wrong on those issues. 
But when you go up there wearing the COS badge, the person that is on, in our corner needs to have your full support, period. I know that's hard sometimes, but it's really important. If we're going to get this done, we have to build relationships. If your state legislator doesn't know you, if the leader of your effort, let me ask you a question. Those who are in states that haven't passed this bill yet, how many of you, I'm not going to ask for hands because it's not important. How many of you know the sponsor of your bill, actually have a relationship with them, have a relationship with the House member, the Senate member, and the other supporters? If the answer is no, then you got to change that. Because that's the only way we're going to win. We have to be known. We're not, at least at this point, we're not being talked about on the national media a lot, which means they're not going to hear about us from their general interaction in the day. I mean, you all tell me this. You're frustrated that we don't, we don't get enough national attention. Again, that's going to change. It's not going to be good, but that's okay. The fact is, if the national media is beating us up, that's, that's a challenge, but it's also a benefit because conservatives now know that, hey, you know, we're, we're one of them, right? So please, number one thing to do is to start thinking about building relationships with your, with your member of Congress. So that's number one. Number two, you're doing the most important thing that you're working with legislatures and you need to convince them they're doing the most important thing they will ever do as a, as a state legislator. They were set up in the Constitution of being the check to tyranny in Washington. The founders trusted them above anybody else. They put lots of checks and balances in the Constitution. Some of them have been ripped away. But the fail-safe was the Article 5 state legislators because they trusted the people closest to the people to check they knew was coming a tyranny at the federal level. And so you have to, you have to convince these members and you have to have the passion that this is about the survival of our nation. This is about what is the most important thing they will ever do. The most important vote they will ever cast is a vote to restore our republic. Right? People ask me all the time, why are you involved in this? Why are you doing this? I, you know, you, I've told you, yeah, I, I think it's the next conservative thing to do. But the reason at my age and after having been involved in 30 years that I'm still doing this is one word, guilt. In my time on the national scene, this country has gone to hell in a handbasket. I mean, you think about where we were 40 years ago when Ronald Reagan was president. And think of what the culture looks like now, what the debt and the size of the federal government looks like now. And as I look around this room, I see mostly folks who have the same color hair I have. And that means all of us, all of us had this happen on our watch. 
You know, many of you have parents who were part of the greatest generation. What made them the greatest generation? Were they really better than us? Well, maybe they were. But here's what made them the greatest generation. They had an existential challenge to the future of Western civilization, and they rose to the occasion and met it and won. And they were willing to make the sacrifices, hundreds of thousands of young men and women died during that conflict. They were willing to do whatever it took to save freedom and our republic. That's what made them great. They met the challenge of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, let's just be honest. We have not met the challenge of the day. We are letting this country, the greatest country in the history of the world, become a tyrannical, sick culture. Washington has become tyrannical, and our culture, as Billy Graham famously said, if God doesn't punish what's happening here in the United States, then he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> Amen? Amen? That's us. We let this happen under while You can say, well, no, Senator, I did this, and I tried this, and I worked hard on this. You know what? I'm someone that doesn't give good marks for participation trophies. I'm not interested in how hard you tried. I'm interested in what we accomplish. And let's be honest, we failed America. I don't know about you. I don't want to be the generation that history looks back on and says, these people lost the greatest experiment in freedom and democracy in the history of the world. We did. No, don't applaud that. Don't applaud that. We need to own that. We need to own the fact that it was on our watch that our country began to fail, is on a path to destruction. And the question is, can we take this generation that has failed America and become the greatest generation that saved America? And I believe, I believe in my heart and soul that at the core of that is this movement. And here's the real challenge to you. I know a lot of you come up and talk to me about, you know, all these people aren't even aware of what's going on. They don't even realize what COS is and how bad things are. Here's the issue. You do. You know how bad it is. You know what's in store for America. And that's a burden that you now have been given by God to carry. And that means... I always say this is one of my favorite lines in, in the Bible. Too much is given, much is expected. Too more is given, more is required. There's no generation in the history of the world that's been given more than ours. We have, we have things like this that 20 years ago was, was a supercomputer. And there was one of in the world. Now we carry them around in our pockets. We have money, we have food, we have technology, we have... Every creature comfort, 
when those lines were written in the Bible, rich people would be considered the poorest of the poor in America today. We are the wealthiest. We have been given the most, which means we have the highest burden to deliver. You are here at this event. You are involved in this movement because you have been chosen. Yes, you can say, well, I, cho- I signed up. No, I don't believe anything is I signed up. The Lord motivated you to do what you're doing and called you to be here. And the question is, are you going to do whatever it takes? The left wins because they are willing to do whatever it takes to win. Now, we won't do whatever it takes because we're only going to do good things to whatever it takes, not corrupt things. But the question is, are you willing to make the sacrifice? And here's what I will tell you. From my experience in working lots of issues over a long time, if you are faithful, God will be faithful. So I ask each and every one of you to make the real commitment, the commitment that this country needs of a great generation to save our land and return our country to the republic it can be again. Thank you all very much and God bless you. All right, you're going to sit on that side. You see why I fell in love with Rick Santorum? Uh, so, Rick, you know, what I want to do is, and, and I talked a little bit about this when I introduced you, is people know you from this kind of stuff, and they see you give inspiring speeches, and they've seen you on television, they watched you running for president all over the country. This morning, it was so interesting to me because I, I was sitting backstage going through run of show and getting ready, and Jackson, who heads our intern program, came back and he said, man, Rick Santorum's just out there walking around hanging out with people. Like just, and I said, well, that's the real Rick. Like That's what he loves to do. He's just one of us. And I think that makes you unusual as a national political figure, right? Because you see all these national political figures and, and they get all the fame and they're surrounded by staff and they start to be separated from the people. So you, that never, for whatever reason, that never went to your head. So I want to dig in a little bit. Tell our folks a little bit about where you were raised and what your family was like. So they get a little bit of where you come from. Uh, my father was an immigrant to this country. He was, um, uh, came over from Italy when he was a boy. My grandfather came um, uh, from northern Italy. He uh, uh, was anti-fascist. Mussolini came into power, so he, he left, uh, ended up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania as a coal miner. Uh, he mined coal for 50 years until he was almost 70 years of age. Grew up in a company town, so, you know, two-room house with a dirt floor. Uh, so that, that it, more than anybody else, my mom's family was an immigrant family, too. Uh, they, one generation, my, my grandfather was the first born in this country, uh, also from Italy. Uh, and so it was a, um, it was a it, it, and my parents met after the war. My dad was in World War II, and they met after the war, uh, both working for the Veterans Administration. So I actually 
spent the first 18 years of my life in public housing, if you will, but I lived on the grounds of a vet, Veterans Administration. Uh, and it was, a, I guess, a unique upbringing, uh, somewhat like an army brat in some respects. We moved from VA to VA around. And, um, but I, I grew up with a deep, great re reverence and respect for veterans, particularly because I, when I was in my formative years in the 70s, veterans were a dirty word. Uh, I remember, you know, watching TV and, and seeing all these protests and how they were, you know, being horrible to, uh, to our men and women in uniform and then, then, you know, opening up my front door and seeing these veterans who, you know, sacrificed so much and are struggling so much with whether it was, you know, physical ailments or mental health ailments. And uh, people say, how did you become a conservative? I said, I didn't become a conservative. I just knew I didn't want to be like these people on the left who didn't respect our veterans. And that sort of was how it was sort of formative for me. And, uh, and to me, that was a, a, a window into, uh, into the, the left-right movement of this country. And, uh, and so anyway, I, I also, obviously, my parents worked for the government. I didn't see government as a bad thing. Uh, I saw them as trying to help people. And, and so I, I came at it a little different than, than most conservatives did, which is I saw government as something that, that could be a force for good. Uh, and, and that it wasn't, while I loved Ronald Reagan and supported him, uh, I didn't necessarily see government as the problem. Now, having said that, once I got involved in politics, I started to change my opinion. <laughs> and, and I saw government as more of a problem than a solution uh, because we went way beyond the bounds of anything that I, we, uh, we considered to be constitutional government. But um, that's how I sort of got into it and, uh, and, and felt uh, that I was being called into into somehow serving the country. Did you grow up in a big family? I had a brother and a sister. Uh, my mom and dad, uh, because of the war, got married later in life. Uh, they were in their 30s, which was old to get married back in the 1950s. Uh, my mother was darn near 40 years old when I was, when, when I was born, which was ancient back then. Uh, and, and so it was a, uh, we were a small family. Uh, like I said, we, uh, we were not political. I, did, I don't think my father ever voted uh, while I, when I was a kid. And uh, he, he felt it was, you know, he didn't want to be involved in politics. And, and my mom, I think she voted, but I, I, I don't really know what party she was. So it was, it was sort of a strange atmosphere, but uh, it was uh, one that uh, allowed me to make some decisions, and I'm happy I made them. So you have, a, in a way, a famous public family. I mean, you've been a guy that stood for the family for so long, and so that's kind of brought a little bit your family into the public eye. Tell us a little bit about your family. So Karen and I were married um, two weeks after the primary in 1990 that I, when I was running for Congress for the first time. Uh, we got pregnant three months later. Uh, got elected a month after that, and then uh, started serving in Congress. So it was a... It was a big. It was a big deal. Uh, my life has always been, and married life has always been in, in public life. Um, and we 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 tried to balance the the public life and the family, uh, and we did so primarily through uh, just putting the family first and making sure that everything was as good as it possibly could be to weather the storms that were coming. And uh, so we homeschooled our kids. Uh, we believed, you know, this was back in the 90s when very, very few people homeschooled and, and it was considered really weird. 
Um, and it was an election issue. I mean, I was criticized uh, for, for homeschooling my kids, uh, but it's the greatest thing we ever did. Uh, recommend it to everybody. I mean, everybody uh, that it's say, <laughs> I have relationships with my kids because uh, we, we were involved in forming them in their faith and in their, in their morality and their ethics. And uh, yeah, we cared about academics, but that was fourth or fifth in our, our, our line. We, you know, academics, you can, you can pick those up along the way. It's, you're not gonna pick up the, the ethical and moral and uh, values and spiritual values along the way in this country anymore. You're gonna, there's plenty of opportunities with our little computers and everything to gain knowledge and information, but to, to, to form children uh, to be prepared for the hostile world that's, that, that is America today and is Western civilization today uh, needs a lot more effort on the part of, of moms and dads. And I think that's, That's the thing we're just, we're, again, part of the greatest generation is, you know, we didn't, uh, the greatest generation thought that the culture would do for, that, for their children what it did for them, but it's not the same culture. And I think one of the reasons that the boomers and everybody sort of fell apart and America fell apart is because they trusted their children to the culture. Uh, that, is, that is suicidal or homicidal in the case of parents to do that to your children today. And so it's harder to be a parent today. It, it's a lot more work, but there's nothing, there's nothing, and you know this, but there's nothing, no, no more important thing you can do than protecting the souls of your children. I always tell people uh, that, you know, we, have, we, have, we had eight children, and, uh, and you know, we, I didn't get married until I was 32. We had our last child when I was 50. And, and my wife was 48, so go there. And, and so it was one of those things, we were just open. We, we believe that the greatest thing you can do in your life, the only thing you do in your life, it's true, the only thing you do in your life that lasts, the only thing you do that is eternal is working and cooperating with God to create an eternal soul. Everything else goes away. So you want, you want to make a difference in the world? Then leave the world with good souls that can make a, a, a better world. And so uh, that's a lesson that we don't tell our children and we don't tell our grandchildren how important that, you know, the family is, but it is, uh, it is the most important. It's most important. That's why I wrote a book called It Takes a Family. Hillary Clinton wrote a book back in the late 90s called It Takes a Village. And so I wrote a response. And uh, she was in the Senate at the time. Only one of you was right, by the way. Yeah, only, <laughs> But I said, you know, that conservatives have to, have to focus on family policy. We have to focus on, 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 on building stronger families. And, um, and I think we've seen the consequences of not doing that. And I think it's another important part of the conservative movement. So you have eight kids uh, and all miracles, because every kid is a miracle. Yeah. But you have one kid that is actually famous. And Probably a yeah, we kid wrote that, a book about her. Yeah, that you probably never expected to be the famous kid. Can you talk a little bit about Bella? Yeah, when I was 50, we had a little girl named Isabella Maria, and um, she was born, uh, we found out after she was born, with a condition called trisomy 18. Trisomy, you've, you've probably heard of trisomy 21. That's called Down syndrome. And that's, that's a child born with an extra 21st chromosome. 
And so having that extra chromosome disrupts the development in the womb and, and has certain characteristics that you are now familiar with. Everybody knows a Down syndrome kid. Although if you live in Iceland, uh, they have eliminated Down syndrome. They're very proud of that, and, which means they kill all of the Down syndrome children in the womb. But they, they said they've ridded themselves of Down syndrome. Uh, if you ever met a Down syndrome child, you probably know what, what they call in, in, uh, uh, in the Down syndrome world, they have an extra chromosome and they call it the love chromosome <laughs> because they're the sweetest, one most wonderful children, but to a world that is utilitarian, they see, they see Down syndrome as a burden. Uh, I see it as a gift from God. And, and our daughter has trisomy 18, which is a much, much more severe genetic defect. 90% uh, of kids who have trisomy 18 die at or before birth of those that survive, 90% die within the first few months. <clears throat> And Bella uh, beat all the odds. And uh, she, she was, she, she, I always say, you know, we did a great job as parents, but Bella has been the greatest gift our family's had. Uh, having a child with special needs in a family can tear a family apart. In fact, most families, it does tear them apart. Uh, we were very blessed that we, we accepted the, the burden, you know. Life is about struggle, it's about burden. It's, it's, it, you know, I don't know if you've read the Bible, but if you have, tell, show me all the passages where God promised an easy life. None. He promised struggle. He didn't say, pick up your box of chocolates and follow me. He said, <laughs> he said pick up your cross. He says, before he was crucified, he said, pick up your cross and follow me. And so we were blessed because, you know, we're, we're, we're strong believers. We were blessed in thinking that, you know, every child's a blessing. So we accepted Bella. It, it was hard. I mean, she, she can't walk. She can't talk. She can't, you know, she, she gets fed by a G-tube. She can't, doesn't anything. She's, she's a permanent six-month-old. Uh, and so she needs complete, total care. Uh, and it's been the greatest blessing. We wrote a book called Bella's Gift. And we wrote 18 chapters. Karen and I decided we were gonna write the book together. And then after an hour sitting there writing the book together, we decided that that wasn't gonna work. Because <laughs> you have a normal marriage. Yes, we have a normal marriage. <laughs> and so we decided 18 chapters that she would write half and I would write half. So we'd divide the chapters. So she wrote 11 chapters, I wrote seven. And Appropriately <laughs> divided in a normal marriage. Well, I mean, <laughs> women have more to say than men. So it, it, it works out that way. And, uh, and every chapter begins with love is. Because Bella, we always say Bella's our teacher. She teaches us what love is. And uh, because you, you love by giving. You know, that's, that's how you love. That's how, and by the way, that's the key to happiness. That's what we found. And, and so we, we wrote this book and I'll give you one example. I mean, that, uh, so many profound things that happened with Bella, but one was, um, standing over her bed and just seeing her and, and realizing that you know, she'd never be able to make me a coffee or be able to do anything for me, that she is totally dependent. She has, nothing, she has no ability to do anything for me. Uh, yet, and when I looked at her, I knew, and she displays all the time how much she loves me. And I sat there and I thought, you know, that's how the Lord looks at me. I can do nothing for him. I am completely disabled compared to him. And all he wants from me is to love him.
And so Bella is So Bella has been the great teacher. People have said that when, uh, when I was in politics, Bella was born after I left the Senate, that I've mellowed since I was in politics. And that's true. Uh, part of it is age, but I think a big part of it is, um, is, is my daughter. And I think it's been for the best. So now you're at the point where you're having grandkids. And uh, about a year ago, uh, a miraculous, they're all miraculous, but a miraculous grandchild came into your life. Can you tell the story of Zelda? Yeah, so um, one of the things I realized is that God, um, as I said before, if, if you're faithful, God will be faithful. And my daughter uh, has been married five years, and uh, last year, you know, she, they've been trying to have a child, and they haven't been able to have a child. And so they, they went, and uh, they made, we're Catholic, and, and so she, she prayed and prayed and prayed and went on a pilgrimage and, uh, to... Um, uh, to her favorite saint, her saint is Saint Therese of Lisieux, and uh, and so she, again, you know, you know, pray. She said, "Look, if you if you somehow give us a child, uh, I'll name your I'll name the child after your mom or your dad." Uh, and so that was sort of the the framework. And so she gets a call uh, on October first from a friend of hers who's at church in a mass. And the priest at the end of mass got up and said, you know, hey, there's a woman in our community who's decided to give her child up for adoption. Um, she's due in two weeks. If you know, and, and there's a chance that the child may have some genetic issues. Uh, there's nothing in the sonogram, looks, everything looks normal, but there's, you know, there's, some, there's some potential genetic abnormalities. And so uh, this woman who happens to be a friend of my daughter's calls her from the back of the church and says, you know, hey, this is, uh, this is what's going on, uh, and, and the, priest, the priest was there, and she said, you need to talk to my friend, so the priest gets on the phone with her, and, and long story short, within a couple of days, she has a meeting with the mom and, uh, in Maryland, and so she goes up and meets her, and then the mom sits across her and says, well, you know, I'm, uh, uh, and tells her story, she's married, she has a four-year-old, but, you know, not sure that she's capable of handling any child that has any special needs, um, you know, they're, they're not doing well financially and uh, they've got some issues in the home and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and so, um, so Elizabeth says, okay, that, that's great. She said, um, uh, she says, in fact, I, you know, I actually contemplated having an abortion. And, um, and so, and she pulls out her phone and hands her phone to Elizabeth. Uh, it's like an iPhone six. She says, this phone does crazy things sometimes. And I, when I was just had after, shortly after I'd found out that I was pregnant and we were going through this, um, I pulled out my phone and the phone had called somebody. And by the time I realized that the phone had called somebody, the person had picked up the phone and it was a priest. And uh, it was, I didn't even know I had the priest in the contact. I hadn't talked to the priest in four or five years, but it called this priest. And so I picked up the phone and, and she said, you know, Father, I'm, I, you know, my phone called you by mistake, but maybe I'm supposed to talk to you. And so the priest, she talked to the priest and the priest connected to a crisis pregnancy center. And the crisis pregnancy center works with a group of, of, of nuns in, in, in Washington, D.C. called the Sisters of Life. And so they connected the Sisters of Life and they start counseling her. And she said that, um, you know, that the sister that she talked to sent, wanted to send her a book. And so she sent her a book and listen, what's the book? She said, Bella's Gift. And Elizabeth's like, oh, okay. 
She said, did you read the book? And she said, well, you know, it was a really trying time for me. So I read the introduction and I was just so moved. I, I you know, I decided at that point that I, I wasn't going to have an abortion. And Elizabeth said, well, you should know a couple of things. First off, that that book is about my sister and that while my parents wrote the book, I wrote the introduction. And, 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 the, and the mom said, and she said, oh, she said, well, um, you should know that I didn't read the whole book, as I told you, but I keep the book at my bedside. And it's still at my bedside. And every night before I go to bed, I look at that book and I look at your mom and dad and I say a prayer that whoever adopts my little girl will love her as much as they love Bella. And Elizabeth says, well, you should know one other thing. Uh, this, the, the sister that you talked to, could that have been Sister Mary Doolittle? And the mom says, well, yes, it was. She said, how would you know? She said, well, five months ago, I was at a conference with Sister Mary Doolittle. And we, she's someone who I've gotten to know over the years. And, um, and she talked to me about a couple that she was counseling, a woman she was counseling who had uh, a, a child that might have some issues, and that she told me that she sent her a book, the book, Bella's Gift. And then she asked me to pray for that woman and the little girl. So I've been praying for you and your daughter for the last five months. And so um, she, uh, she saw that as uh, and she does to this day that this little girl was meant for our family. And uh, interesting thing, I told you that she prayed to St. Therese of Lisieux. Well, the feast day of St. Therese of Lisieux in the Catholic calendar is October 1st, which is the day she got the call. And, uh, and so we, we, are, we are very, very blessed. And I, I always tell this story that, it, that I told this story to a friend of mine. And his immediate response was, I just bought a white pickup truck. And I said, okay. <laughs> he said, you know what I found out? I said, no, what did you find out? He said, everywhere I go, I see white pickup trucks. Did you realize how many white pickup trucks there are out there in America? When you drive around, there are white pickup trucks everywhere. And I said, okay. <laughs> he said, it's like God. Until you experience God, you don't realize he's everywhere. And so, and this is what I keep coming back to. Zelie was a little girl like Arbella, who had some disabilities. She was a little girl that was gonna be adopted. I mean, aborted. I spent 30 years of my life working on the disabled and to save children from abortion. And God just said, thank you. God will be faithful. If there's any message I can leave to you, as you take on what seems to be an impossible challenge to save the nation that he loved the most. If you are faithful, 
so will he be. God bless you. Rick Santorum. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com slash pod.